0: With the midterms coming up this fall, there is this big existential question for both Republicans and Democrats. How do we deal with Trump? He reshaped the Republican Party, but he's not the face of it anymore, at least for now. So do the Democrats continue to run as the anti-Trump party? And do Republicans pretend that Trump isn't a thing anymore? This may seem like a question that's hard to answer, but there was a test case in November in Virginia, the first round of major elections since Joe Biden's win a year earlier. Democrats saw this one race as a test of Joe Biden's presidency that could offer broader insight into how voters were feeling around the country. Some people saw it as a bellwether of Republican strength, a way to predict whether Donald Trump could return. Here is the Democratic candidate for governor, Terry McAuliffe.
1: If we don't win this thing, this is Donald Trump's comeback. And people need to wake up. And I know we have elections every year in Virginia and people get tired, but this is very important.
0: But for Republicans, it wasn't just about Trump. After he lost the White House, some Republicans were eager to try a new strategy, one that centered less around the former president. And in Virginia, the face of that new strategy was Republican candidate Glenn Youngkin.
1: The same stuff that's happening in our school districts is happening in their school districts, and we have a vote, and we are about to send a message to the entire country.
2: He doesn't come out of politics. He's another one of these fabled businessmen that some people think we need outsiders and business people to be our executives.
0: That's David Montgomery. He's a staff writer for The Washington Post magazine.
2: He comes off as a common man, a reasonable person, not an angry politician, a smiling person on the stump.
1: It's about a Virginia that soars, a Virginia that doesn't
2: ever settle. If you remember, until the summer of 2021, it looked as though Terry McAuliffe, this was going to be a fairly easy victory for him and that Virginia was going to keep trending Bluer and bluer and bluer as it has for the last eight years. But suddenly, Glenn Youngkin started to get traction in the fall. And by late October, early November, it looked like we might have an upset and we might have a really surprising story here in Virginia.
0: So, spoiler alert Youngkin ended up winning, and he became the first Republican governor in Virginia in a decade. The question was, Why? Why did voters in a state that rejected Donald Trump suddenly swing right? From the newsroom of the Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, February 18th. Today, a test case for both parties in Virginia, and later in the episode, a tribute to the kids' show Arthur. Stay tuned. The question of what changed for voters in Virginia, a state that had been getting bluer and bluer, that very question had been on the mind of reporter David Montgomery. So he set out to answer it.
2: I thought Virginia could be a really clarifying lens to understand a lot of the anxieties and hopes that Americans everywhere are feeling. And I thought I could learn a lot about Virginia, sort of write a portrait of Virginia by talking to lots of Virginians and giving them a chance to take the time to tell me how they were feeling. But I really thought that I wouldn't be hearing things that were unique to Virginia, and I thought we might learn something about America in the process.
0: David went on a road trip around Virginia to find out what this purple state can tell us about the fault lines of American politics.
2: I wanted to meet engaged residents who had a perspective that might be left or right, red or blue but I wanted to meet them where they are. And the best way I have found in other assignments to sort of meet people and also to, at the same time, stitch together a portrait of a state is to just hit the road and go as far and deep into the corners that no one ever gets to.
0: The story originally aired on the post-politics show, Can He Do That? That show's producer, Arjun Singh, had heard the rough tape that David recorded from the road, and he wanted to know more. So David and Arjun, take it from here.
1: So let's head to the first stop on this road trip. You went to Loudoun County. Can you tell me a little bit about this place and why
2: you wanted to go there? Loudoun County is in northern Virginia. It's just outside the inner ring of suburbs outside Washington. It's a very interesting place, and it's a place of transition in Virginia. Two decades ago, it was very rural, rural. Overwhelmingly, the population was white. It was very conservative, had Republican local leaders. And in the last decade, it's become much more diverse and more liberal. Terry McAuliffe actually carried Loudoun County, but he carried it by less than previous Democrats have one in the county. So, Yunkin really made some important inroads in Loudoun County. And the reason I really wanted to visit Loudoun County and I wanted to visit it first was because it was ground zero for one of the most intense debates and passionate issues around which this election really turned. And it's an issue that resonates across Virginia, and I think across America, and it has to do with education. As the pandemic wore on and on, a set of parents became really sort of upset about mask mandates and about the schools being closed for too long. They thought their children were not getting a proper education, which is a familiar debate. But in Loudoun County, that got layered into several other cultural issues that matter a lot to parents. Loudoun County, because of past examples of racism in the public schools, has been going through a process in recent years of instituting an equity program and making sure that students of color have the chance to succeed and not feel alienated in their schools. And white parents began to feel that this was some kind of critical race theory thing invading their schools, and they were concerned that it was politicizing education.
1: This is about a parent's movement to take back their schools and to get a seat at the table on how our public schools are run.
2: Loudoun County also became a hotbed of the debate over bathrooms for transgender students and what pronouns to address transgender students. And many conservative parents really objected to those issues being brought into the schools.
3: It's absurd and immoral for teachers to call boys girls and girls boys you're making teachers lie to students and even kids know that it's wrong this board has a dark history of suppressing free speech
2: An equally passionate cohort of parents, however, feel really strongly about these advances in equity and diversity that Loudoun County has made. So I wanted to go and talk to parents on both sides of this. And I got lucky because Glenn Youngkin, in the weeks after his victory, he went on this thank you tour really across the state. And one of the places he wanted to say thank you was to the conservative parents of Loudoun County. And he held a rally in late November in the parking lot outside the Loudoun County School Board. It was incredibly jubilant and enthusiastic, which really impressed me because it was also frigid. It was one of the really first cold nights. This was a sort of late Saturday afternoon into the evening. And people got there early. There were hundreds of people who gathered in this space next to a flatbed truck where there were American flags and Yunkin signs. And for 20 or 30 minutes, they were waiting for Glenn Yunkin, and they were talking about how great this victory had been. There was someone had set up a table where they were selling Let's Go Brandon uh, merchandise, and folks were waving their signs, Parents for Youngkin, and there's lots of rock and roll music really loud. (laughs) Folks in the crowd were just so enthusiastic and so happy and so almost joyful. This was a victory that they didn't necessarily see coming, but now they were almost pinching themselves. The parents who were in the crowd were waving their parents for Yunkin's signs, and this was sort of the moment they'd been waiting for. And one of those parents, a woman named Cheryl Underchain, was given the honor of introducing Yunkin before his speech.
4: Instead of despair in this parking lot today, I truly feel optimism and excitement for the change that will come starting in January.
2: Cheryl became very concerned Earlier in the pandemic, when the schools remained closed for longer than she thought was necessary, she and a lot of parents were beginning to feel as though remote learning wasn't working for their children, and they objected to the schools being closed. That was the beginning of their activism, but not the end. The conservative parent movement began to also focus on these other issues, critical race theory and the the way equity issues are dealt with in the public schools and she's a white mother. She has two children of high school age, and many of the parents became active, and a group rose up that included many of the parents called Fight for Schools. And that was sort of their vehicle to hold press conferences and to raise these issues. And I thought it was very interesting. She communicated why exactly it was that we were here on a frigid night, You know, not on a field or in a park. We were on a cold asphalt patch.
4: Our kids were hurting. And we felt so helpless. In this parking lot right here, a movement was born. We sparked a revolution. We came together as strangers and formed a coalition of parent warriors that grew and grew. And we never gave up.
1: For someone like Cheryl, going to this rally, being energized by Youngkin and this passionate issue about education... Did they feel also that they were in the midst of this moment of divisiveness? Did they feel that the state had gotten as polarized as other people watching the election did?
2: Yes, they were feeling the division and they almost felt as though they had to raise their voices on their side of the division. Because from their point of view, for the last eight years— Democrats have been in the governor's mansion, and especially for the last two years in Virginia, Democrats have controlled both houses of the legislature and the governor's mansion. And Democrats were very successful at passing a range of progressive bills that concern these parents. And so they see themselves as one side of a fight, and they're not done yet.
4: I felt like talking out against some of this woke ideology and Mm -hmm. critical race theory Uh was a taboo topic. I didn't want to be labeled a racist. Right. Um, But then I quickly got over that fear because I realized it was just too important to stay quiet about.
1: It was interesting that you described Cheryl as almost an accidental activist because it seems like on one hand, so many people were activated in favor of what Glenn Youngkin was saying, but then you had a lot of people activated in reaction to what Glenn Youngkin was saying. One parent you spoke to that was activated in this election was a woman named Britt Jones.
5: I don't have any sort of pol- political, professional uh, experience. Right. So this is all very new to me.
1: Um, Could you, you describe Britt for me? Tell me a little bit about why she got motivated
2: to get involved. Britt got motivated to be involved precisely in reaction to seeing the success of the Cheryl Onderchains and that side of the debate over critical race theory and other issues in the Loudoun County Schools caused people like Britt Jones and several of her allies on the other side to awaken themselves. They were sort of caught flat-footed. They were surprised that by late summer and early fall, the anti-critical race theory forces and the conservative point of view on equity issues were making so much noise and seemingly defining the terms of the debate. So Britt Jones watched that, and she just could no longer stand it. And she said that she wanted to raise her voice and get involved, and she wanted to make it clear to the rest of Virginia, the rest of America, that Cheryl Onderchain and the supporters of Glenn Youngkin don't necessarily speak for Loudoun County.
5: And it's very important that we vocalize and publicize the fact that that is not what Loudoun County stands for. It is a small subset of people who are backed by right-wing dollars who have an agenda to destroy democracy.
2: It's very important to point out something, that critical race theory actually is not being taught in the Loudoun County schools. No matter how much Glenn Youngkin promised to ban critical race theory, and parents like Cheryl Underchain talk about critical race theory infecting the education of their children. Critical race theory is a college level theory about how systemic racism pervades society, but it's not anywhere in the curriculum of Loudoun County. Critical race theory for the conservatives became a shorthand for anything that had to do with equity and trying to make sure that People from marginalized backgrounds were given an equal chance and were receiving the resources and the support that they need in education. And so when Britt Jones hears folks talking about wanting to get rid of critical race theory, what she believes that they're really talking about is to getting rid of equity and a commitment to diversity and a commitment to anti-racism and that things are being said about what the children are being taught in Loudoun County that just aren't true
5: seeing that there were blatant lies that were being pushed and misinformation that was being echoed. I wanted to be part of the other side, the voice of truth.
2: This is personal to Britt Jones. She is a black mother and she and her husband are raising two sons, ages six and 12 in the Loudoun County schools. And the idea that the subject of race would be sugarcoated or whitewashed or somehow dumbed down to sand off all of its uncomfortable features and implications is something that parents like Britt jones as well as white allies are just adamantly against
5: history is messy but there's a value in knowing the truth if we understand our history we can change our future if we change our history to make it more comfortable and we don't lean into the discomfort of what actually happened we're at great danger
2: and When she hears parents say that, you know, talking about racism is too uncomfortable for children, it's not age appropriate, she just points out she has a six-year-old and he will experience racism probably in his life. And if he can experience racism at six years old, it's age appropriate to talk about it.
5: I mean, racism is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to experience. It's uncomfortable to talk about. But there are children and there have been children throughout history who have experienced racism. Right. So if you're young enough to experience it, my children are young enough to experience it. It's age appropriate to, to talk about.
1: Can you tell me what exactly she is doing right now and how she's trying to influence this shape and direction of Loudoun County and
2: specifically the schools? She and several other parents helped form a group called Loudoun for All, which is a group that wants to make sure that Loudoun County is open and welcoming to people of all colors and beliefs. And when I talk to parents like Britt Jones and others involved in Loudoun for All, they sort of admit that they were late to the game. The conservative side had been super organized and school board meetings were just flooded with those people criticizing policies in the schools. So Loudon for All was formed as a way to engage in the debate and show another side of the story. And I've been to school board meetings where you see people with different colored t-shirts from one group or the other, but they feel as though it's very important that these beleaguered school board members understand that there are parents who have a progressive point of view and think that all of these policies regarding equity that the Loudon County school system has worked so hard to foster in recent years, these parents think that those aims of public education are very important and they want to wave a flag and raise a voice.
1: It's really interesting that you talked about this divisiveness that leaked into these school board meetings, but that seemed to have percolated into the community of Loudoun County as well. You spoke with one man named Omar. Can you tell me a little bit about Omar and his wife and his story?
2: Yes, I met Omar Tufeli and his wife, Sam Al Gubani, one afternoon as I was meeting people in Loudoun County, they invited me over to their townhouse and they have a very interesting story. Can you tell me about that? You feel something different or notice something?
3: Different? I mean, uh, this is honestly, this started. Uh a little, even a little bit
2: earlier when, uh, they are a classic in a way, a classic immigrant story. Omar grew up in Lebanon and Maisam grew up in Iraq and they met abroad and fell in love and became a couple. And they moved to America with a very strong patriotic affection for America. My Maisam in particular has an experience connected with her devotion to America, which is a little bit hard to hear. While she was still in Baghdad and in Iraq, she served as a translator for U.S. military forces. And at one point, she was shot in revenge for the service she was giving this country. And thankfully, she recovered. So they were brought to this community precisely because of the schools. And then Omar, suddenly in the last year or so, begins to detect this negative energy in the air.
3: And the whole uh, situation changed in, uh, suddenly. I mean, so people became uh, somehow not uh, as friendly as they were before. And mm. th- these barriers between people, they started to, to getting growing bigger and bigger. So we did not feel like the uh, the safety and security that we were used to feel before. Yes.
2: He just happened to post some kind of innocuous message of support for the Loudoun County School Board. And suddenly that just poked a hornet's nest of criticism. His Facebook started filling up with sort of vitriol and folks found his business online and started posting negative things and they found members of his family. And he said, what has become of this country?
3: We are in in, uh, the best country in the world and uh, this country deserves all the best. We really do our best to to, to stop the hate and stop all these problems among uh, people. I mean, so I'm not sure how, but uh, we need to find a way to let people live in peace.
2: He described to me subtle ways and not so subtle ways where he has begun to feel a little less settled, a little less secure in his community. All he could say to me is that his perception of his community is radically altered. And they shared that they're honestly wondering if things don't get better, if people don't start treating each other better and talking to each other better, they might not end up staying or they might consider leaving. The reason I so valued my conversation with him is because it was this little case study of what I think is happening perhaps across Loudoun County, across Virginia, and I think across America. And it's this idea that we're no longer trying to sit down with people who disagree with us and together find solutions. We're just yelling at each other from either side. And he shared with me that he happened to have voted for McAuliffe, but He wishes Glenn Youngkin well, and he said the most important thing that this new governor should try to do is figure out a way to bring us together. And he really fears for the future if we don't sit down and try to work together to find solutions to whether it's education in Loudoun County or some of the bigger questions that face the country. Coming out of Loudoun County, Omar and Maisam happened to be some of the last people I spoke to. Until I met them, I had been sort of crossing from one side of the battlefield to the other and hearing from both sides and feeling a little depressed and wondering, is there a way out? I was struck by how deeply felt their passion was for what they were fighting for. But I wondered, how do we get out of this? And then I met Omar and Maisam, and they're almost the collateral community damage. They're sort of feeling the fallout of all of this divisiveness, and it's tearing their community apart, and they weren't alone. So it's a conundrum. We must stand up for what we believe in. That is very American and important, but Part B is arriving at solutions. And so as I continued my trip in Virginia, I began to focus my reporting on both illuminating the divisions, but also sort of asking both sides And now what? How are we going to get past this? Or are we going to just stay in this bitter stalemate?
1: So now let's get out of Loudoun County and let's head on over to a place called Harrisonburg in Rockingham County. And I'm very interested to hear about your experience here, particularly because you headed to a very interesting farm. Can you tell me a little bit
2: about that? Well, it was an interesting journey to get to the farm. I turned off a main highway and onto a country road, and immediately I was struck by how most of the farms had... Donald Trump signs, Glenn Youngkin signs, Let's Go Brandon signs at the ends of their driveways. And then I got to this farm fence that had a sign in three different languages saying that we welcome our neighbors, sort of a classic liberal sign that you see in liberal neighborhoods around the country. I drove up the driveway and climbed to the top of a hill where I saw that there was a fire going and there were four farmers there and there was a table upon which there were the heads of four pigs. And the farmers were, one by one, beginning to butcher the carcasses of some sustainably raised pigs that had grown up on the farm and in the area. There, sir, is the front
1: leg. Oh, wow. Here's the scapula, Uh the spine of the scapula. This
0: is their femur, and they don't have a tibia and fibula. They just have one boon.
2: Just a few days earlier, the farmer who owns the farm, Lindley Thorne, had had a big bonfire on the same hill.
4: Directly across the street from my son's middle school Hmm. has been this Trump train RV bus that's been parked out there for the last at
6: least week.
2: And it was a place where all of the dejected progressive, rural progressives, folks who lived out in the country and didn't want Glenn Youngkin to become governor, this was a time for them to come and have some solidarity and to grieve the loss and to show their resolve for what would come next. And Lindley got out a big piece of butcher paper on that day and wrote and everyone went up to the butcher paper and wrote down, you know, where their hope came from for Virginia and their resolve about not giving up on the democratic message in the countryside. Lindley Thorne is something of a democratic activist, which is an unusual profession in this part of Virginia. But she really believes in the idea that a liberal democratic message can resonate in rural areas if only Democrats show up and have respectful conversations with people who might Lean the other way
4: because I think that's where the message actually comes from, truly in the most authentic way. Is that if you're sitting listening to public comment at a school board meeting yeah. or at a supervisor meeting, yeah. and a citizen stands up to the podium yeah. to advocate for something, like that's the message. That's yeah. that is where the message really, truly is that
2: comes. In the past, she's worked on campaigns, and she also is a political director for a group called Rural ground game, whose express mission is to support and elect Democratic candidates from across Virginia. One thing that really interested me about her is she's very invested in the idea that conversation and community building is a way not only to bind divisions, but as a byproduct of that, that's the way you can get your message across. Did she tell you how those conversations went? Were people
1: receptive to having them?
2: Now, I don't think she would claim that anyone's minds were changed. And probably an essential feature of the conversations was that they weren't trying to change anyone's mind. But I think she said it, it, it was helpful in some small way. And her point to me was that she's not naive and that there are gradations of conservatives and Trump supporters, Yunkin voters, and that as concerned as she is about those, and it's a real concern, she thinks that from afar, sometimes liberals and Democrats take those very concerning examples and decide that that represents rural Virginia or rural America. And she said to me, those voices are the loudest, but it's the wrong lesson to say, All of rural Virginia is racist. All of rural Virginia doesn't care about LGBTQ students.
4: And I think if folks from, you know, the urban crescent could be present and have a deeper understanding of what's necessary for them to keep surviving, even in the cities, um, that might for them be helpful in, you know, wanting to express some gratitude and and dignity for people who
2: raise their food. There's a lot more political diversity in rural areas. It may not be the majority. And there are people who, from the rural parts of the state, who really believe that their message can take root there. Lindley, speaking as a Democrat herself, I could tell that she feels a bit of irritation at a superior attitude that may come from... Democrats in the big cities who think the whole game and the whole future is in the cities. And when you look at your
1: experience in Rockingham County compared to what you saw in Loudoun County, did you pick up any of the same hostilities or tense rhetoric that you had heard when you were in Loudoun County?
2: I didn't encounter that kind of rhetoric directly. I did meet plenty of Republicans who are profoundly worried if not scared about the direction of america and they think democrats are a threat but also at the same time i could tell sort of are would welcome conversations there was one woman i met in particular who set told me that once upon a time she used to think her liberal friends and her conservative friends she's a conservative all agreed on what they really disagreed with was how to get the country there and now she's afraid that Her liberal friends want to take the country in a completely different place, that there's no longer agreement on where we want to get the country to go. She said, I used to be able to have those conversations where I could tell them what I believe and they could tell me what they believe, and now I can't have them anymore.
1: So now that we're heading out of Rockingham County, you're going to be taking us into a place in western Virginia. And I'm curious why you wanted to head there. What were you hoping to learn?
2: Roanoke is a relatively small city in the western part of Virginia. And the city itself is actually pretty blue. But I wanted to go there because I had gotten a contact with some Republicans who were doing almost the opposite of what Lindley was trying to do in Harrisonburg. I met Peg McGuire, who had run as a Republican for the city council in Roanoke in 2020.
7: When the Democrats took over both the House and the Senate, they had the trifecta. They went so far to the left that they forgot that there were a number of people who had to live with those policies.
2: Her whole approach as a Republican in a blue place is to try and have conversations. And her phrase to me was that the thing you have to do is you have to meet people soul to soul, not ideology to ideology.
7: Why should anyone be hated for their vote? Because their vote comes with a story and a belief system and Gosh. who they are as a person. Mm-hmm. And if even if you voted for McAuliffe in the governor's election, why? you you have some deeply
8: held beliefs.
2: That was a good motto for really what I was hoping to learn about on this whole trip. What kind of a candidate was she though? And what motivated her to run as a Republican in a very blue place? Well, it's it's an interesting story because she wasn't always a, a such an avowed Republican nor a fan of Donald Trump in 2016. She did not vote for Trump. She voted for a third-party candidate named Evan McMullen. But after the election of Trump, she began to become a, a fan of his policies, if not always his conduct. And she really began to resent a sort of supercilious liberal critique of Donald Trump, and it really offended her. She thinks that at least a wing of the Democratic Party has just gone, in her view, around the bend. They're just way too liberal. However, she is not a fan of folks on her side doing the same thing that she thinks liberal Democrats do, i.e. write off the entire Republican Party as racist Trump supporters. She thinks that Republicans make a mistake when they just write off the Democrats as a bunch of socialists who hate America and love China. And she thinks that we can have a lot more progress and fruitful conversation if some folks who are a little closer to the middle are willing to sort of hear the other side out. She just thinks that there, there's a way to be a, a conservative that sometimes gets lost. And one way it gets lost is folks on both sides starting to think of politics as a football game where all that matters is that your team wins and the other team loses.
3: People think of
8: politics as team sports. Yeah. And it's not, we're not on a football field. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
8: You know,
7: we are in a country that we, this is it. This yeah. is the last hope on earth.
1: Yeah. This is it. There
7: is no other place that you can come with nothing
4: and
9: create
1: something. You've spoken to a liberal and a predominantly conservative place. You've spoken to conservatives and predominantly liberal places. What were your takeaways from these fish-out-of-water conversations, if you will?
2: I like having those fish-out-of-water conversations because you're meeting someone who's forced to step outside or at least be able to think outside his or her ideological bubble. They're in a place where they're not going to win arguments easily. They're in a place where they have to empathize in some sense of what the person they're talking to, where he or she may be coming from. And I I thought those places are good places to learn about how some of our divisions might be bridged. Not all of them. I don't think people should compromise on their beliefs, but maybe there's a way to at least have respect for folks and not think of them always as the enemy if they don't share your deeply held beliefs.
1: Okay, David, so you're taking us to the last stop on this road trip and you're taking us to a hair salon in Rocky Mountain, Virginia.
2: Yes, Rocky Mount is a uh, Wonderful little town, less than five thousand people, just south of Roanoke. Very conservative. And I went to the Eleven Eleven beauty salon because it's owned by a woman named Bridget Craighead.
9: I never, never even dreamed of even having my own salon. Well, I mean, I did, but yeah. I never thought it was going to really be my reality. Yeah. Because I, we just didn't. I didn't have those opportunities.
2: Right. One morning, I went to the salon as she was waiting for her first customer to arrive. It's very crowded with chairs and hair dryers and sinks for shampoo, and it had the poster supporting Black Lives Matter. It was George Floyd's death that inspired her to become politically motivated.
9: Right after George Floyd passed away, we had um, a protest that exceeded our expectations then. We thought only 10 people was going to show up, but throughout the whole day, like over 100 people came through. I mean, it was... It was an amazing day, and we just took that right right in the middle of Rocky Mountain. It has never happened here before.
2: As she described to me, ever since his death, there was sort of a tension in the town that she also connected to larger political forces, Donald Trump's re-election campaign, January 6th, followed by the campaign of Glenn Youngkin in Virginia. She's a single mother, and she told me how proud she was that at one point several years ago, she had to rely on government assistance, but she worked her way off it and is now a small businesswoman, owns this salon, and she decided to run for the House of Delegates in Virginia this past year. She got 23% of the vote in a very conservative place and lost to a conservative Republican, but she was proud to have made the effort, and her campaign was very much one that centered the rural poor, largely white people in that part of Virginia, and she was running on things like better public transportation.
9: towns are getting scary,
2: mm-hmm.
9: and instead of entertaining this national propaganda, these distractions, we need to be worrying about our neighbors, mm-hmm. what's really going on in, in our district. Mm-hmm. There's people that are literally living in tents. Mm. Like, I could take you there now. They're mm-hmm. living in tents. They're ODing on heroin. This is mm-hmm. happening in rural Virginia. And we don't have no place mm-hmm. for these people to get help besides the inner cities. Mm-hmm. If you don't have a bus to get to those inner cities, you have to walk Yeah. to get there if you don't know somebody to take you.
2: Right, right.
9: So it's real life things that's going on down here mm-hmm. that needs national attention. This is a national cry for help.
2: So Bridget's first customer of the day came into the salon while Bridget and I were in the middle of our conversation, and Christina Morris comes in with her daughter, Brie, who is about to turn 12 years old.
9: Hey, Queen. Hey, how are you?
2: Christina is white, and she adopted Brie, who is black, several years ago, and she wanted to bring Brie to a place specializing in black hair. But what was so amazing to me was the sort of level of honesty in their conversation. And it became instantly clearly that they really didn't agree on a lot of things politically, but they really respected each other. And it was was an amazing conversation for 90 minutes as they almost did a tour of things that were divided about in America from the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict, Black Lives Matter. Christina said, sometimes you can understand why people might misunderstand that organization when they see demonstrations where folks are using that slogan and and the demonstrations get unruly and Bridget had to come and say, look, did you ever see anything like that at my demonstration? The tone of this conversation was entirely amiable and almost affectionate. For example, after the Kyle Rittenhouse discussion, Bridget brought up the case of Crystal Keezer, who is a young African-American woman who's facing prosecution for having shot and killed the man who was sexually trafficking her. And that was something they totally agreed on. Christina leaped into this chance to say, yes, I agree too. And there's another moment when the conversation turned to hair and Christina told Bridget how she had been giving herself lessons on how to give crochet braids to Brie and just a big smile um, spread across her face and she ran across the salon and gave christina a big hug and she explained that it is so rare in her experience that white people give black hair its due and she was just really moved by that
9: and you being able to crochet her hair is amazing to me (laughs) because even in school it's like well hair school White people didn't want to do my hair. That right there is what you call, like, just, uh, that's love, bro, I love that. I love that you took the time out to learn how to do that. That's awesome.
2: And then finally, Bridget just put it directly to Christina. Look, we just, we don't agree on a lot of things. Our views don't add up. Bridget said to Christina, look, you're a Republican. You voted for Glenn Youngkin. I'm a Democrat, so how do we get along? Why was this a remarkable interaction for you? Nearly all of my encounters on the road trip up to this point, and this came very near the end of my road trip, I had had those encounters within one ideological bubble or the other. I was talking to a liberal, a progressive in their space, or I was talking to a conservative in their space, and I never managed to luck into a place where the bubbles were merging and there were folks with different perspectives talking to each other. And so here was a time when Christina, who identifies herself as a conservative libertarian leaning person, and Bridget, who identifies herself as a, a liberal Democrat and a Black Lives Matter activist, were sitting together and taking the opportunity to share their views about a lot of things. I don't know if they had an influence on each other politically. And as I left the salon, the thing that occurred to me is that I hadn't necessarily seen either one change the other person's mind, nor had I seen either one compromise on their principles. But I thought that what I had witnessed was two people who disagree were able to sort of still look forward to their next encounter the next time Christina brings Bree to the salon. At
1: the outset of your reporting journey, you had hoped to go into Virginia to learn something about the state, but also our country as well. What
2: did this trip reveal for you? What did you learn after all of this? I think what surprised me the most was just how deep the divisions are. And yet at the very same time, the people on either side of these divisions have a surprising amount in common. And the thing they have in common is that they are all engaged as they never were before. They feel as though we're in a time of urgency. They they share a great sense of alarm. In some cases they blame the other side for what's going wrong in the state and the country. And at the same time they all do sort of yearn for a time that some of them can dimly remember when It just wasn't like this in Virginia. It just wasn't like this in America, where every public issue, every political difference was some kind of an existential battle. I think they all wanted the temperature to be taken down. What I learned in Virginia is that the bedrock of so many disagreements are some of the age-old disagreements that Americans have had over things like what is the right amount of government control? Today, that manifests itself in Virginia and around the country in pandemic restrictions. The question of race that we talked about earlier, that's nationwide, hasn't been figured out, but it's, it's at the base of a lot of the things people are talking about. Questions about how we make sure that All Americans feel a part of the society in Virginia. Some white conservatives, as surprising as it may sound, feel as though their voice is being left out after two years of liberal rule in Richmond. That sounds strange to advocates for minority rights, but it was enough to bring out a ton of people who elected Glenn Youngkin governor. So I think the bedrock of what is driving political passions in Virginia is what we are seeing I think, in every state across America.
0: David Montgomery is a staff writer for The Washington Post magazine. This story originally aired on the Post Politics podcast, Can He Do That? It was produced by Arjun Singh and edited by Robin Amer. After the break, a tribute to the kids' show Arthur, which ends a 25-year run on PBS this coming Monday. We'll be right back.
8: Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find try this from the Washington Post wherever you listen.
0: And now, one more thing about a very special Aardvark.
8: Every day when you're
9: walking down the street,
0: this is the theme song for Arthur, an animated children's TV show. It has been on the air for 25 years, and the final season airs on PBS this Monday. The show follows Arthur, in aardvark, and the rest of his friends as they navigate the complexities of third grade.
1: So that's your new dog? Yeah, his name is Pow. He looks more like a Steve. Steve?
3: Does he do anything
1: besides that? Not yet, but I'm going to teach him to flip through the air and catch frisbees upside down. But right now, I'm just house training him.
0: Today, we're talking to the creators behind the show. And when we first started talking about doing a story about the 25th anniversary of Arthur, our producer, Ariel Plotnick, was so excited. So, Ariel, I wanted to talk with you about why you were so pumped to do this story.
6: So, the show first started in 1996. I was born in 1993. And I realized, like, I have never known life without this show, Uh, And really, for me, and I think for a lot of people, Arthur just felt like this constant friend that you would come home to every day after school. Arthur is in third grade, so he's eight years old. And the show kind of felt like this prophecy of... You know, what kids could expect growing up to be like, like this is what it might be like when you lose your first tooth or this is what it could be like uh, if you need glasses. So in that way, for me, the show wasn't just entertainment, but it was really sort of a companion.
0: I love hearing you talk about the show because I think that everyone can relate to this of having whatever was the show that they watched as a kid growing up that they will always have this like warmth and, and nostalgia about. But I, I wonder, especially in your conversations with the people who started the show, as you've been reflecting about why it was significant and, like, where it came in the children's TV landscape of that time. Like, why do you think Arthur is important? And why do you think it is something that is, like, worth kind of understanding where it fit in?
6: So I'm not alone in loving Arthur. There is a reason that this show has been on for 25 years. And I wanted to talk to the creator of this character about what makes Arthur so relatable So I called Mark Brown. He is the author of the books that the TV show is based on.
3: A newscaster in Chicago once asked me to describe Arthur in just a few words. I told her that Arthur is an eight-year-old aardvark navigating the mud puddles of life. What kids see in Arthur is someone real, like them, with no superpowers, who sometimes needs help from his family and friends. The characters in his world are never perfect. They make mistakes, get into trouble, fight with their friends. They show you can learn from your mistakes and become a better person. The stories model empathy, forgiveness, honesty, and generosity. There's a magic that happens in that space between us and the pages of a book or on a screen where imagination and real life can merge in transformative ways.
7: We were out there looking for a book series
6: to adapt. This is Carol Greenwald. She is the longtime executive producer of Arthur.
7: Someone gave my son the book of Arthur's Tooth for his birthday, and we read it and read it. And then it turned out that Mark Brown was visiting the local library. So I went to hear him speak, and I thought I'd like introduce myself. But of course, I couldn't get close to him because he was mobbed like a rock star.
3: When I was about six years old, and I was watching my dad get ready for work, he worked on the railroad, and he hated his job. And I watched this so many times. I thought about what it was going to be like when I grew up, and I wanted a job that I really loved. After art school and college, uh, that didn't happen immediately. (laughs) A truck driver briefly uh, with a bad sense of direction getting lost too often. I worked briefly as a short order cook, and that didn't turn out too well.
6: But he was good at illustrating. He was actually drawing for textbooks at the time. And one night, his son asked for a bedtime story. Mark came up with a character, Arthur the Aardvark. That little story turned into the books, which turned into the TV show. And they wanted to make a realistic show about kids' lives. When we started,
7: I don't think that was something that most kids' programming was doing, you know, there was music shows, there was a lot of fantasy shows, but kind of something that was really anchored in real life, I don't think there was much of that. And the stuff that was about real kids didn't really feel like it had depth or nuance to it. I think one of the reasons I've really enjoyed working on Arthur all these years is because of how it reflects the lives of kids, real kids. And that's something we've really worked hard to do.
6: Tell me a little about like what what you mean when you say it reflects the lives of real kids. A couple of years in, I was having a phone call with the guy who did
7: our international distribution. And he got interrupted and he said, "Oh my gosh, my son got on the wrong bus. I'm going to have to hang up." And I'm like, "Oh my god, go go go, you know." But then in the back of my mind I was like, "Hmm, sounds like an Arthur story. And I'm like, all right, well, we'd love to talk to Sam, his son, because we think we should do a show about Arthur getting on the wrong bus.
6: What do you want?
1: I, uh, I, I'm not in the right place. I was supposed to get off at the pool. So what happened? I, I fell asleep, and I don't have any money left for the bus home, and I don't even know where I am or I'd walk home, and... Hey, kid, I've heard enough. Don't sweat. It happens all the time. All kids screw up.
7: All kids misbehave. That's just part of growing up and learning. So we really never wanted to show perfect kids. We wanted to have kids who felt very real and authentic and also learned from all of these experiences so they could become their best selves.
6: How has the show adapted over a quarter of a century to keep addressing what it's like to be a kid? Um, especially, you know, these past 25 years, a lot has changed (laughs) in our culture. So I'm curious, how did the show think about adapting? A lot has definitely
7: changed. And we did our best to try to look at new episodes that addressed some of the stuff that came up. But I also think a lot hasn't changed because a lot of the kind of milestones that kids go through, losing a tooth, starting school, trying to make new friends, those are kind of consistent across the board. It doesn't matter whether you're 1996 or 2022. But of course, there are a lot of changes.
6: On Arthur, their flavor of embracing these changes didn't really result in the sitcom-style, very special episode vibes. The things that made the characters unique, whether it was having a disability or having gay parents, were just sort of normal parts of the show and normal parts of the characters' lives. Like, for example, Arthur's best friend Buster is the class clown. He loves aliens. And he also happens to have divorced parents. I think that was one of our goals, that kids live in a lot of different
7: ways. And making that the background to someone's life, rather than the point of the episode, I feel like that's something we tried to do to differentiate ourselves, because that is the way kids live. If they have a gay parent, it's just they have a gay parent. It's not like... The subject of their life. It's more part of their background. And we just wanted to make sure that kids who had that experience, who lived in those circumstances, could see themselves reflected.
6: The show is ending production of new episodes, but there will still be reruns.
7: You know, it is going to be around for years to come. We have over 250 stories that are on PBS, and they are going to continue to run them. And I think that There's new kids all the time who will sort of say, oh wait, that's just like me, and that connection will get made. We made a show about being afraid of fire drills, and that was actually because my son had a fear of fire drills.
0: Listen up, boys and girls. I've just been told that soon our class will have our first fire drill.
1: Didn't Ms. Morgan say we're gonna have a fire? Yeah, that's why we have to have a fire drill.
7: And then I used to go around and show episodes in classrooms sometimes in the Boston area. And I was in one classroom and we showed that episode. And this little boy came up to me afterwards and said, that story is about me. I'm afraid of fire drills too. We wanted kids to see that they weren't alone. And I think that's hopefully going to continue to happen for our audiences.
0: So, Ariel, what does it mean to you now that the show is finally coming to an end after 25 years?
6: I haven't watched Arthur in a long time, but when I saw that it was ending, it kind of felt like a friend was moving away. Mark Brown recently wrote a book about the legacy that Arthur leaves behind, and he mentioned this idea of the dignity of being a third grader. And that really stuck out to me when I read the book because, first of all, I think that that's just like a lovely sentiment that all people, no matter what age, they are important. They have meaning. But also, I think that really struck me because as we've been living through the pandemic for the past couple of years, kids have really, you know, borne the brunt of A lot of the challenges the pandemic has thrown them, like not being able to go to school, maybe not having that independence of seeing your friends. And I think Arthur really modeled for parents and for kids that kids are smart. They have their own really unique experiences and their feelings are real. That's something so special that the show captured that I don't think we should forget about. As an original point of view And I say, hey, hey.
0: Ariel Plotnick is a producer on Post Reports. The last season of Arthur will air on PBS on February 21st. You got to to your heart. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sam Bear. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our supervising senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Dio and Ted Muldoon. Jordan Marie Smith is a producer. Ariel Plotnick and Renny Spronovsky are associate producers. Sabby Robinson and Emma Talkoff are assistant producers. Sean Carter is our engineer. The post director of audio is Renita Jablonski. And this week, we said goodbye to one of our producers, Lena Muhammad. If you have been listening to the show for a long time, you might recognize her name or remember hearing her voice. But you have definitely heard her work. She has been with the show since the very beginning and shaped everything about what we do here on Post Reports. It is such a heartbreak for us to see her go. She is off to do amazing things in the radio world, and we are so proud of her. Lena, we love you, and we will miss you so much. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey,
3: what a wonderful kind of day. Hey! Hey,
8: DW. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.